0: Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who thinks deeply about the blockchain space and in my spare time, I want to hear the story of Binance, a cryptocurrency exchange. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Joyce Young, founder of Global Coin Research. Welcome Joyce and it's great to have you on our podcast for the first time.
1: Hi, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, and actually we were connected through a common friend of ours, which is Jessica Lesson, the founder of The Information. And we're here today to talk about a company that's pretty interesting in the blockchain space called Binance. But before we get there, I would like to get to know you better. Joyce, how did you start your career?
1: Yeah, glad Jessica connected us, Bernard. So I started my career essentially in San Francisco as an equity research analyst for Merrill Lynch. I graduated from Harvard for undergrad and got a bachelor in economics. And during my time at Equity Research, I was conducting research on software as a service companies and open source software. So I was always very inspired by the startup mentality and entrepreneurial spirit in Silicon Valley while I was based there. And after I moved back to New York City to be near my family, I was looking to build something on my own. So I spent a brief period at a food consumer company called Blue Apron and saw the company go through an IPO, and then also at a Chinese bank called CICC, which is the first Chinese investment bank formed under a JV with Morgan Stanley and China Construction Bank back in the 80s. So when I saw the crypto space and learned more about it in 2017, I found it to be a great opportunity to exercise my professional experience and my personal interests. That's essentially a combination of my interest in Asia and technology and the finance space. And that's really how I got started in my career.
0: And you're currently based in New York where you're doing global current research from there, right?
1: Yes, yes. But I travel to Asia around once a month to different countries just to learn and kind of engage in the community and see the events there. I'm really global, I'd say.
0: Yeah, it's actually good to at least once per month to come to Asia because I do know of analysts from the US who have never showed up in Asia, but is always talking about what's going on in Asia. But given that you have a very interesting career in equities research and also dealing with both China and US, from your career journey itself, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think my background is pretty interesting that I kind of spent half my life in China. I immigrated with my family to the US when I was 10 and then spent the latter half of my life in the US and going to undergrad at Harvard. I think coming from a traditional Chinese family who generally likes to see you having a very steady, stable path in your career, you know pursuing a career in finance or becoming a doctor, being at Harvard was actually very stressful. What they like to tell you, essentially, is that you have to find your passion on the first day that you land on campus. And I think this is something that I, you know, looking back now, feel like I learned a lot from this because of the fact that it was very stressful for me, starting from the second I got into college up until now even, that, you know, this idea of pursuing passion was a very stressful idea and concept that it was very abstract. And I was constantly searching for it. I know it sounds a little entitled. Maybe perhaps people would say that, you know, I'm already very lucky to have gone to a great school. But I think many people from my generation kind of struggle with this problem. So what I try to do when I was searching for this, you know, quote unquote, passion is try many different roles at different stages of the companies. Whether that's at high growth tech company or working for a Chinese bank and then, you know, spending time in the valleys talking to many startups. And after I started Global Coin Research, I realized I was kind of getting close to discovering that feeling of a you know, passion, which I think now, if I could describe it for folks who are still searching, I think it's a combination of something like combining one's interests, knowing their strength, and then also identifying their personalities, and putting all that together into solving problems for society in a big way. So that's really something I kind of concluded from my entire journey when I was thinking about this question.
0: Mm. That's a very interesting perspective because I think it is difficult to really pin down your passion until you really find something that is really important that will set you on this course of fulfilling its mission and vision. Of course, you have a pretty interesting experience. I mean, companies like Blue Apron, CICC, they are not ordinary companies. These are companies that have actually built from scratch and actually suddenly go in a rocket ship. To where it is today. So currently you are the founder of Global Coin Research. Can you discuss what it does and what are you covering in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space then?
1: Yes. Global Coin Research is a paid subscription newsletter that provides insights on context on the cryptocurrency happening globally. And we have a major focus on Asia. So I think unlike other industries or, you know, looking at traditional finance or technology, crypto And blockchain is inherently global and digital. So everyone around the world kind of learned about cryptocurrency around the same time. You know, Satoshi's white paper really came out and was able to distribute to everyone in the world. And that's something very unique about the genesis of this space. Because if you look at, I think, traditional finance or technology, generally Asia and China are a few years to a decade behind than the West and, you know, that's partially driven by the regulatory environment and how kind of where the direction the leadership were taking these each of these countries. But I think crypto and blockchain is fundamentally different. So even though we see that there's a different type of crypto businesses or projects being built or introduced in Asia versus, you know, the West, I think there are interesting events happening simultaneously. So for someone who loves China and Asia consumer technology, like me, and then I really appreciate the creativity in the way that these companies build out their adoption and virality. I think cryptocurrency is a great entrance for folks who didn't know anything about Asia, but now has to understand Asia to see the full picture of crypto. And you know, we see that it's such an important part to understand because we see that the top three exchanges, for example, Binance, Huobi, OKX are all either founded by Chinese natives or Chinese American or Canadian individuals. And then you have these top mining companies like Bitmain, which is also founded by a Chinese student from Tsinghua. So I think it's inevitable now that folks have to understand Asia, and this is what Global Coin Research tried to provide. And we do that by providing two important values. And one is providing information and filtering out for the most important events and news happening in Asia, because there's so much noise in the crypto space already. Knowing what's important is is not an easy thing to do, actually. And then second, we try to contextualize the events and the happenings and the most important things through interviews and podcasts and analysis with the most important industry leaders and influencers and kind of thinkers. So this is how we essentially are designed as a platform.
0: I'm very curious, just as a follow-up question, I wanted to ask you for your opinion on this. Since you actually cover Asia, do you find that covering, for example, in terms of the cryptocurrency and blockchain space, in terms of the technology, you need to bifurcate between cryptocurrencies themselves and blockchain applications?
1: Yes, I think currently a lot of people do, but I think cryptocurrency and blockchain should really be understood as you know two sides of a coin and they're you know really interrelated and if they're not related then I think they're not a true cryptocurrency or a distributed ledger with proper incentives in mind and that's really how I think a lot of the projects in Asia are kind of built right now which is that purely they're talking about blockchain And that's partially due to the kind of the regulatory constraints and limitations around, you know, no marketing around cryptocurrency and the attempt from the regulators in managing capital control in the case of Bitcoin, in the case of China specifically, actually. But I do think that shouldn't
0: be the case. Mm. That's the, actually the context why I did that follow-up question because in China I think that when they banned the cryptocurrency exchanges and they banned the ICOs what they didn't do is they didn't ban Bitcoin and then they started having this promotion of blockchain applications and you have seen some use cases in the past year where they did blockchain invoices in Shenzhen they're starting to have regional provincial initiatives on blockchain research Whereas the rest of Asia itself, the cryptocurrency and the blockchain doesn't decouple where people are doing ICOs and they are basically using the cryptocurrency as a form of tokens to whichever application that they're building. So the second follow-up question to me is in covering Asia, do you have to split China and the rest of Asia as well?
1: That's an interesting question. And I would just add a little bit there saying that even projects in you know, Korea, for example, mostly tout the value of blockchain and not the cryptocurrency because the Korean government actually is not very pro-cryptocurrency. You know, even despite we see that you know, Korean won was one of the most traded fiat currency in the industry. There's a group of people who you know loves trading and speculation, but the government actually doesn't really want to promote the tokens and the coins part so much. And they kind of just also specifically focus on the technology part. But, you know, like you said, there's I think in many of these different Asian countries, the regulators tend to be more stringent around the coin aspect because there are a lot more risks to kind of driving the wrong incentives and creating civil unrest when folks especially, you know, want to speculate and lose money from it. And so I would say there's a range of how much each of the regulators from different countries control these cryptocurrencies. And, you know, I think in Singapore, for example, the regulators have been very transparent in actually categorizing these cryptocurrencies into different types of currencies. And, you know, these cryptocurrencies, honestly, I think they shouldn't even be bunched into one term called cryptocurrencies, because they're all used for different things. Only thing that they have in common is that they're digital. And it's like, it could be tradable, or it may not even be tradable yet. But it's just an asset that's out there that people could own.
0: And I think that that's the difficulty because some of these cryptocurrencies can actually be securities. And when you have securities, you need to have a lot of regulation on top of it, similar to what's going on in the stock exchange in the other traditional financial derivatives. But today we would like to have a pretty in-depth conversation on a company which has been getting a lot of traction and a lot of people are talking about it is the company Binance. To me, as a layman and maybe because I also dabble in cryptocurrency exchange and reading a lot on blockchain technologies because I was actually converted as soon as I read the Satoshi's original white paper. I think that was in 2010. I thought that that was a great paper. Yeah. Maybe because of my background as a theoretical physicist where I actually looked at the concept itself. So I wanted to ask you probably as an introduction, can you talk about Binance, this global cryptocurrency exchange and introduce it to my audience in how should we understand this company?
1: Yes, Binance is a fascinating company. And for folks who may not be familiar, it's the largest cryptocurrency exchange by volume. And the exchange currently focuses on Crypto to crypto exchange, so you know I trade you Bitcoin for Ethereum, but I cannot trade you Bitcoin for the U.S. dollar, or you cannot use the U.S. dollar to buy Bitcoin. And the exchange is founded by Zhao Changpeng and He Yi, who are two Chinese native folks. Zhao Changpeng is also known as CZ in the industry, and he grew up in China and then immigrated to. Canada when he was 10 and went to McGill for college and kind of spent his time in the exchange space building exchange software and to give our listeners an understanding of the scale in which Binance is operating at Binance was started in July 2017 when the company did an initial coin offering which is essentially you can interpret it as a crowdfunding for the Binance token called a BNB and by the second quarter of the operations, Binance, uh, the company, has already done $200 million in profit in that one quarter. So it's been about two years now since then, and Binance has about 400 employees, and they're officially domiciled in Malta. The origins of the company is that it was originally founded in China, but after numerous regulation crackdowns in China, as well as kind of the surrounding regions in Japan and Taiwan... Binance finally moved its servers and headquarters out of Asia and settled into Malta. So at this point, the company has a market cap of $1.4 billion, which is derived from the BNB token that's traded on the
0: market. Wow. So they started in 2017. And I followed the China cryptocurrency exchange space pretty closely. And I think before Binance came up, there were three big cryptocurrency exchanges, which eventually all have to move out of China. There was BTCC, there was OKCoin, and there was Warby. So what was interesting to me when also doing some research on the company, what's the chronology behind the formation of Binance? Because the current CEO, Zhao Changpeng, was actually the third member of the blockchain.info team. And he was also the former CTO for OKCoin, which was one of the top three cryptocurrency exchanges in China.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting story. And I think it's fascinating that Binance, even though it's one of the later entrants into the cryptocurrency exchange space, kind of have really came out and became the number one trading exchange. And I want to mention something really quickly that I forgot to mention, which is that they trade about 40% of global crypto volume at the moment. And they are the top trade exchange for 40 of the top 50 largest market cap tokens. And the second largest exchange after that Bifinex by volume, I think does about half of the trading volume. And that's about $400 million worth of daily trading volume. And going back to your question about the origins, I think it's pretty interesting to learn how CZ has spent a significant amount of time in building, developing matching order systems and trading software since out of college. So he studied computer science in McGill and then spent his early days at Tokyo Stock Exchange and Bloomberg building these software systems. And then he decided to strike it out on his own in China by building this company called Fusion Systems, which sold high frequency trading systems. So this industry is really his bread and butter. And it seemed like he joined crypto in 2013 when he started working with blockchain.info, as you mentioned which is a blockchain explorer, essentially meaning a service that provides data on the Bitcoin transactions, and then spent time briefly as CTO of OKCoin. I found in the news that there was a fallout between him and the CEO, Starshu, around early 2015, kind of disagreeing on the direction of where they wanted to take the exchange. So then CZ left and actually ended up building Binance officially in July 2017 really officialized by him doing an ICO and showing the BNB token and raising fifty million million to run his company.
0: And I think this is very impressive because unlike in the US, uh, Silicon Valley culture, typically where technical co-founders leave, they don't usually turn up and set up their own company and become CEOs. I think it's actually much more happening in the Chinese space where you could be a CTO, but you come out and become a CEO by yourself in that sense.
1: Yes, I agree with that. And that happens a lot in crypto too, because if you are a technical co-founder and blockchain right now is still mostly very technical and kind of laying out the the foundation work, which is why I think investors are willing to give capital to technical folks.
0: This is interesting. So given that that is the case, Jiaqiang Huang is only just one guy. I think he's co-founder He Yi. Who are the other key players and executives in Binance that are also interesting? Because I don't think that it's just two people that build up this entire company. It probably requires a lot of other capable talent who have joined the company itself.
1: Yes, yes, I agree. And I think at this point, CZ being able to kind of build exchanges, you know, exchange software for decades now, he spends most of his time actually, I would say, in operations and strategy and branding for Binance instead of the technical part. And for the rest of the team, what I find super fascinating is that they're so global in their experience and in the way their mindset is shown from their experience. So what I mean by that is that if you look at their chief strategy officer, Ted Lin and the CFO Wei Zhou, they both grew up in North America. Ted actually went to high school with CZ in Canada, but both of them are educated in Ivy League colleges. And they also have a lot of experience after college working in Chinese and U.S. technology companies. So, for example, the CFO Wei Zhou has a lot of international experience where he went to Harvard for undergraduate and then worked in Goldman Sachs in Hong Kong and then served as CFO for multiple companies in China, such as Xiaoping.com. And then right before Binance, he was a vice chairman of Grindr, which is a U.S. LGBT dating app which was later acquired by a Chinese gaming company that was with the acquisition led by him. And the chief strategy officer, Ted, has held several roles in sales and marketing across financial institutions and technology companies globally as well. And everyone on the team is bilingual. You know, from my conversations with them, it's like they're fluent in Chinese and English. And I would say the only exception to that is He Yi. Hui Yi joined CZ very early on, right when the company started. She's the chief marketing officer and also former co founder of OKCoin. Hui Yi doesn't speak English at all, but she has a lot of experience in Chinese media and kind of had an influence already in China before she even joined Binance. So overall, the team is very globally minded. You know, when you talk to any of them, they're able to converse with you in fluent English or in fluent Chinese, and their responses. I think sometimes are different in these different languages, which I find super fascinating because that's partially because of the questions being asked to them. But at the same time, being bilingual in you know, these two large markets in crypto, you know, in China as well as the U.S., is super advantageous for the company.
0: I think this is where it's becoming interesting. I mean, a lot of people talk about ByteDance, which is another company who's been with famous apps that actually go global with TikTok and Toutiao. Doing mm-hmm. while actually the other global company that sprang out from China that's actually very global is Binance. And people don't talk about that as much. I mean, even you have brought up radio with Bitmain. I'm very curious to know, what is Binance's vision and mission according to the founders as of today?
1: Yeah, I think from my observation of the company, it really looks like a lot of the direction is set by CZ. He is the, kind of the visionary and the evangelist for Binance as well as for the crypto industry overall. So when you hear him talking, he comes off as someone with very big visions. You know, I think about this very US centric. I think about kind of, you know, Mark Benny off on Salesforce because he's, talking about the global impact of crypto and positions Binance as one of the biggest advocates for the space. So, for example, Binance has set up a Binance charity to help underserved communities in Africa. And CZ has also often comes out and donates BNB tokens to, you know, people in need, such as, you know, when there was a flood that kind of destroyed a lot of the parts in Japan and he came out saying that he will be donating and supporting the folks there. So, you know, although Binance is making a lot of money through its current exchange, I think another thing that's interesting and that shows kind of him really advocating for the space is that they're looking to build a decentralized exchange, which I think the general crypto community supports a lot because it would enable users to be in more control of their assets. So we could talk a little bit more about that later on, but, you know, I think... Even now, when we're in a bear market in crypto, you always see CZ on Twitter pushing the industry along and kind of lifting the spirits of community, you know, commenting on you know, potential regulators being open to Bitcoin and allowing you know, fiat on-ramps. So, But I think ultimately, looking from an external outsider's point of view, crypto is still a very trading, heavy industry. And CZ's vision and what he's preaching for ultimately will in turn boost Binance's business and position in the crypto space, given that they're the number one exchange. So he's previously spent a lot of time with different regulators around the world to encourage them to allow crypto exchanges to operate there and allow their fiat-to-crypto channels to open up. And that's something I think he's working on to really benefit his business as well as industry overall.
0: So CZ is kind of the person driving the mission and vision. It's kind of like a little bit like someone like Steve Jobs who drives the tech industry, but he's driving the entire cryptocurrency exchange space and also offering his opinions of where the industry should be moving, whether it's blockchain applications and such. Do I get it right?
1: Yes, because I think one of the advantages he has over the other founders in the exchange space is that he's bilingual and he embodies a lot of the kind of Silicon Valley entrepreneurial spirits and is able to relate to them. It's not just Silicon Valley, I would say. It's obviously the rest of the world who are advocating for crypto for the kind of empowerment around decentralization as well as privacy, right? These are the attributes that he also associates himself with versus, you know, if you look at Star Shu, who's the CEO of OKX and the CEO of Hobi, none of them actually speak or engage with the U.S. community. For example, like they don't really talk on Twitter and crypto Twitter is huge, You know, that's really where most of the English speaking community aggregate around to speak and dialogue. And CZ is able to stand out and differentiate himself from the other exchanges from that.
0: It's very interesting because if you think about the cryptocurrency exchange that a lot of people buy, at least from the layman point of view, Coinbase comes to mind. But I think they're still very US centric. And I think they're still trying to operate in a framework of being a centralized crypto currency exchange, whereas the ethos of blockchain or cryptocurrency as a whole is talking about decentralization. And what caught me when I was thinking about doing this episode on Binance is that it really focuses on the very core tenets of what the original cryptocurrency model envisioned by Satoshi Nakamoto came up from being decentralized and finding a way to be able to make the crypto exchange to move as fast as possible. But I want to get to this question. What's the current business footprint of Binance given it's originally founded in China and then has to move out of China because of regulation and how does it operate across the world?
1: Yeah, so Binance currently primarily is dominated by crypto to crypto trading. So anyone from the world really can open an account online and trade their crypto and I guess the only exception is China when, you know, China banned exchanges. So in that case, the Chinese IPs are banned on Binance, but people in China would just kind of circumvent that by using VPN and going over the firewall. I think in the last year, CZ has been really focusing on encouraging regulators to allow fiat to crypto trading because it will essentially unlock the next wave of capital, as you imagine, and the kind of opportunities in the crypto market and in return benefit Binance. And regulation has been one of the biggest barriers in this space, you know, from either kind of opaqueness in the example of the U.S. to, you know, slow to make decisions in the example of India, and then in outright bans in the example of China. So they all vary widely. Since moving out of China, finance is really trying to work with different regulators, and they have successfully been able to work with the island of Jersey and Uganda to support trading of the euro and the British pound with Binance and the Uganda shilling. So these are now, you know, fiat channels that folks can enter and participate on trading on Binance. And I think what's interesting also, and what people have been getting excited about this year is that Binance at the end of last year received a strategic investment from a Tamasic affiliated fund called Vertex Ventures. I think Vertex is an LP of Tomasic and their plan for 2019 and Binance's plan that is, is to convince the Singapore regulators to allow them to build out a fiat to crypto exchange. You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that if mean, you think that's actually going to happen because, you know, we're in a bear market and honestly, I haven't really seen much positive responses from the regulators here since.
0: Just in case everybody do not know. Thomas is the LP behind Vertex, and Vertex has also done very, very interesting investments. They are behind Grab, which basically acquired Uber Southeast Asia. They have also invested in Space Mob, which was acquired by Rework. So they have actually been very good hitters. It's run by a gentleman by the name of Troy Kilok, case of the entire Vertex investments, and he's actually an entrepreneur-turned-VC. So he's operator-based. Not a typical finance guy who come in and be a VC, but I think case of Singapore, they would be more deliberate because the policy for uh, cryptocurrency, at least from my understanding and talking to friends in the Monetary Authority of Singapore, is that I think they want to take a more deliberate approach towards cryptocurrency. It would take some time, and I think they want to see what's going on in the rest of the world before they actually want to Mm -hmm. allow this full fiat trading. Thing happening. What I would also be very curious to know is how did Binance make it so quick to become like the largest cryptocurrency exchange with a market cap of, I think, 1.4 billion and also has owned 40% of the transactions? I mean, what have driven them to hit rocket ship growth so quickly?
1: Yes, this is something that I'm really fascinated with as well. And, you know, I think when it comes down to it, It's honestly the simple things that we take for granted in the traditional exchange space that many exchanges in the crypto market still don't have given the nascency and the kind of unsophisticatedness of many of these exchange operators. So, you know, I think these certain attributes that Binance has hit right includes, you know, the reliability and the speed in which trade executes you know, that's something in traditional markets, it just happens in an instant, we take it for granted, but it's not necessarily true in many of the exchanges. And happens, I think, probably the quickest in finance. And then the second is good customer support, you know, just having people responding to your questions on Reddit forums, and having an active telegram group, where people could actually seek for help whenever they, you know, lose their private keys or access to their accounts and there are people who are there to support and help you is something that's I think underrated in the cryptocurrency space and that's especially hard because many projects and exchanges operate on a decentralized level so you can imagine for example Binance has a lot of their team members in China, in Japan, in Singapore And trying to operate and manage a team like that is not necessarily the easiest for many folks or executives who are not used to managing decentralized, you know, remote teams. And the last thing, I think, just making sure that your funds do not get stolen. Because I think, unfortunately, many people may have known about the cryptocurrency exchanges getting hacked and read that in the news. And that happens to, you know, the largest exchanges in Japan, like MonkoX, back in a few years ago, to last year when 400 million was hacked from one of the leading exchanges in Korea. So these are all big fears from, you know, a regular citizen who just wants to make a quick buck or wants to hold on to their tokens and learn about the cryptocurrency space. But just these simple things, if they're unable to even feel like they could safely secure their tokens or assets in the exchange, then that's the big driver driving them away from working with this exchange. And many, sometimes exchanges also have a lot of hiccups in the operations where, you know, the transactions don't go through. Once you have one bad interaction like that, that drives the customers out. So I think as a result, you know, just by having lots of experience in the exchange space. And having a team that's able to kind of rally behind this idea of pursuing, you know, high quality exchange, CZ is able to sustain that ongoing kind of momentum. And he's also very good at PR. And like I mentioned before, you know, he's very active on Twitter and he also spends time with Chinese media. So, you know, he's able to gather the mind shares of both continents. Not just both continents, you know, all over the world, I'd say, but obviously appeal to the largest users of crypto and traders of crypto, which are folks in Asia as well as the US.
0: I assume that he also have the Chinese channels similar to the ones he have in Telegram. I assume someone think like a WeChat group for Binance.
1: Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. They partner with media folks a lot. Chloe, for example, because she knows Chinese so well and she's a media-driven personality in China. So she's been very good about also talking to a lot of media folks in Asia.
0: I think what I'm probably very curious to also ask is, what is this recent initiative that Binance and three other major cryptocurrencies, that they raised about $32 million for a stablecoin project? And I think to take a step back first, maybe you can first explain to my audience, what is the concept of a stablecoin and why Binance doing this is becoming very important in the cryptocurrency space.
1: Yes. So stablecoin is a growing trend in the cryptocurrency space overall. I think that the space is trying to really help bridge between the opaqueness that is Bitcoin and Ethereum to traditional fiat asset like a dollar. So stablecoin, as you can imagine, just by the name, it's a digital asset that's supposed to have a stable value. So it could be pegged to a dollar. So one tether, for example, which is a stable coin, is pegged to the dollar, so it's equivalent to a dollar. You know, If you own one tether, you can always go to an exchange and claim a dollar back. And alternative versions of stable coins include you know, one stable coin that could be backed by a basket of cryptocurrencies or currencies.
0: Almost like an ETF fund.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah. But they're supposed to stay stable, and that's the thing. So the value has to stay stable because the idea is that Now people do this in cryptocurrency and blockchain project, which is that they pay out people's salaries in stable coins because, you know, that is more stable than volatile markets that we're seeing now. And so if you pay Bitcoin or Ethereum to folks, you know, that could reduce in value to half in a month. And, you know, it's just so much unpredictability. And that's where I think a lot of the traditional finance folks kind of feel resistant to entering the space because of the volatility. You know, they're like, how do we use this thing? It's so volatile. So that's kind of how stable coins was born and really gathered a lot of traction. And the specific stablecoin that you were talking about that raised $32 million is a stablecoin project, I believe, named Terra. And Terra is also a stable coin that's based on an algorithmic design. So what that means is it's stabilized based on certain rules underlining the token supply and the demand so whenever if the stable coin for example prices go up then the company will try to increase the supply to make sure the prices come down and they do that kind of automatically with you know rules built into the blockchain so how binance got involved in this token i think is because they have investment arm called binance labs and the Binance Labs essentially just invests in different projects they find promising. And their goal is to kind of really help the space, push the space along, encourage people to continue build. And they now have this Binance Labs program in multiple locations around the world where they fund projects to build cryptocurrency and blockchain enable tools, or you know, whether that's a native project or protocol.
0: Just a very curious question, follow-up from that. Why did they work with the other cryptocurrency exchanges i mean if this is pretty much they're very good and they're technologically very sophisticated as a cryptocurrency exchange why wouldn't they go alone with terra
1: yeah so i think as a project who has a token ideally they would want to issue their tokens on all the exchanges you know not just on the top one even though you know binance trades so much you know about 40% of the volume But the more exchanges you're able to participate on, I caveat that by saying that Binance Labs investments do not necessarily mean that you directly get to list your company or token on these exchanges. Just by the fact that you're getting invested from Binance Labs doesn't mean that you're going to get listed. But the idea is for these tokens is to increase your liquidity. And the more liquid you are, the more widely you're used and traded. And that increases adoption because obviously a lot of exchanges still have different user bases in different regions. And so that overall increases adoption. So, for example, Huobi is very Asia-centric. You know, I don't think they have offices in the U.S., but a lot of the users and participants are actually based in Asia. Whereas Binance have users all over the world. I'm not sure exactly where they're distributed, but they're probably very distributed given that they're doing so much of the volume. But the idea is that the more exchanges you can get listed on and potentially getting these investments will help you get listed on these exchanges and will help increase the liquidity and also your presence in these different markets and adoption.
0: I'm curious to ask you this. Do you think that the current cryptocurrency exchanges, the way how they evolve is very similar? Like you can think of BDCC, OKCoin, and all the other cryptocurrency exchanges out there, like in the days of MySpace, Friendster, and then suddenly Binance just came along like a Facebook and then starts to gobble out like 40% of the market share. Or there's still innovations that there may be another challenger out there at some point. But given that ZZ has been pretty familiar with exchange trading technology. I think that is where his core strength and I think that makes him very formidable against most of the other cryptocurrency exchanges because I think he can even take this and map back into the financial trading world at some point. Yes. When you start bringing crypto into the traditional stock exchange options and all fixed income derivatives.
1: Yes and I think Binance stands out amongst the other exchanges because for one c z is very persistent about pushing the industry along versus other folks who you know may be trying to figure out other alternative ways to monetize in this moment. we're in a bear market, but the consistency in which the company is able to continue to promote the industry and push it along in you know in technology front in the delivery of the real results front is something that I think is quite unique actually, and also like when you mentioned. Comparison with MySpace and Facebook, I think that CZ does see the value of a platform play. And with that, I guess in the exchange sense, what they're doing is not only creating a centralized exchange, but also a decentralized exchange. And then they're also offering a launchpad, which is a platform for tokens to conduct their initial coin offerings. And they have all these different products that they're building on top of this you know, platform. Called Binance, which I think is very smart and differentiated.
0: So that comes to one of my last questions. They have recently launched something called the Binance Chain, which is actually a blockchain that's made by Binance. And maybe please correct me if I didn't understand it clearly. So, what does this mean for the business? Is it a new form of technology and why is it important?
1: Yeah, so I would say that Binance originally was built as a centralized exchange. The problem with centralized exchanges is that your money essentially goes to a centralized party like Coinbase or another exchange and it sits on their servers somewhere and there are potential risks of getting it hacked. And we've seen that in the cryptocurrency space especially. So given this increasing trend to empower owners to hold on to their own assets and to improve security from the current type of cryptocurrency ecosystem, Binance built their own blockchain called the Binance Chain and that's actually not built from scratch, but it's based off of an SDK from this project called Cosmos and their consensus algorithm called Tendermint. And they built this Binance chain. And on top of that, they built a decentralized exchange. So what the decentralized exchange allows you to do is hold on to your own assets right until you have to make the transaction. So it never leaves you and never goes into the exchange servers until you make the transaction and then you know the transaction is immediate. So it makes it a lot less vulnerable for attacks.
0: It must be interesting because it's kind of trying to pass the responsibility of owning the crypto assets back to the owners. Right. As we have already learned in the past few years that there's a million Bitcoins out there that is missing because people have lost the keys or put it in some old computer hard disk that they forgot about. Right, right. Is that where they want to move move (laughs) their credits?
1: Yeah, I know. I think, you know, it's something they probably are aware of and what this decentralized exchange play for Binance, I think is just being able to provide a different offering for every person who has a different need. You know, it's not that they're moving away from the centralized exchange to the decentralized exchange and, you know, moving all the trading on there. But what they want to do is being able to provide that service as a centralized exchange, which already is very good at monetization and it's, you know, runs very well on its own. And then now also provide this decentralized exchange for folks who chooses to, you know, who probably are more savvy in trading um, kind of decentralized exchange platforms to have that choice to use that. So I think that's quite smart because it's something that's complementary to the centralized exchange rather than actually taking away any
0: kind of competition. It feels like it's designed for hedge fund managers who is trying to do very quick transactions and they want to make sure they have always had the money in their own bank.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> they have their OTC desk as well now that they're setting up. So I'm sure it's going to be very active as well.
0: Joyce, many thanks for coming on the show. And I don't think that this will be the last time we'll be talking about Binance. I think there's a year ahead and we are probably going to have another conversation coming up soon. So in closing, I want to ask you two questions. Can you first recommend a bold movie podcast or anything that have recently made an impact to your work and personal life?
1: Yeah, so I hope no one on your show has already mentioned this, but I've been just reading Billion Dollar Whales. It's about the story about the 1MDB scandal and the corruption in the Malaysian government. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's...
0: Yes, yes, I've read it actually myself. Took me two days to finish the book when it came out, written by two of the Wall Street journalists who have uncovered the story.
1: Yes, yes. It's quite interesting. And I think actually sometimes I read about Jolo, the main character, and I see some parallels between him and some of the scammy entrepreneurs in the crypto space, which there are many, unfortunately. But it's very refreshing to read such a book about a real-life scandal like that.
0: I think eventually it's going to maybe be made into a movie. And it's going to be starring, you know, the guy from Crazy Rich Agents, uh, Ken Jeong. Oh, really? Because he has that kind of look. Yeah, I think, I think he's the right actor for that role. <laughs> because he had to be busy, he had to be scammy. In that depiction, he was the accurate depiction. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I also want to highlight another book, which I think is the 1MDB report uh, written by Claire Newcastle Brown, who happens to be the sister-in-law to the former Prime Minister of UK, Gordon Brown. And she started this Sarawak report. And without her getting the information for Gustav Java, which I think is the key witness to the 1MDB scandal, the Wall Street Journal guys wouldn't have gotten the information to actually uncover the entire conspiracy.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll check it out.
0: And of course, I probably should just also put some caveats because she's having an ongoing spat. With the Wall Street Journal guys, because she claimed that they stole her leads (laughs) on that. So I probably should just cover that. But I think it's for me. I always think that we should just read every perspective of the same issue, so that we don't get ourselves into a situation of trying to be biased or being pushed by one point of view. So
1: yeah, I agree.
0: Just to close off the conversation, how do my audience find you?
1: Yeah, they could find me on Twitter. I'm at Joyce in NYC. Or, you know, you could find us and follow us on Global Coin Research uh, Twitter. That's spelled with Global Coin R-S-R-C-H. Or, you know, easier way would definitely be going to GlobalCoinResearch.com. And be sure to sign up for our newsletters where we give one complimentary newsletter a week. For our readers about Asia crypto. So we'll love to see you guys there.
0: And you can definitely Google me at Bernard Leong. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and Himalaya now. And of course, I forgot Spotify. Tweet to us if you have any feedback and give us a five-star rating on iTunes, one star on Pocket or Overcast. And most importantly, just send me your feedback. And I would like to thank some of my listeners out there who have been helping us to tweet out some of the stats and some of our recent episodes, uh, particularly the Western Union one. I wanted to thank most of the audience who have been listening to that episode. So once again, Joyce, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon.
1: Thank you so much, Marnit.